Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. To be human is to experience anxiety. To some extent, our survival requires it. Unfortunately, however, anxiety generally gets in the way of us living our lives more than it helps in saving our lives. Many times we try to stuff it away, hoping to deny its existence, which doesn't really work. As one of the biggest contributors to psychology, Carl Jung once said, what we resist persists and tends to get worse. So my friends, it's up to us to deal with this bugger. While there are many ways to deal with it, some are more helpful than others. How can we best attend to our anxiety? What are some simple lifestyle changes we can make that can reduce the negative impact it has on us? And how can we actually listen in to our anxiety to see what it might be telling us? Fortunately, I know just the person to ask these and so many other questions about anxiety. Dr. Ellen Vora is a Columbia University Medical School educated psychiatrist who works in Manhattan. She's the author of a book I devoured called The Anatomy of Anxiety, about which Publishers Weekly said, readers struggling with anxiety would do well to seek out this first-rate primer. I wholly agree. What's more, Ellen creates a compelling argument that anxiety isn't merely a brain disorder, but a whole body condition. And she addresses anxiety through that lens. So listen in as Ellen and I look at the anatomy of anxiety. Dr. Ellen Vora, who has asked me to call her Ellen, welcome to Super Psych. Adam, thank you for having me here. Oh, this is so much fun. As I was telling you offline, it's rare that I read a nonfiction book and can't wait to get to the next part and can't wait to listen again. I was actually listening rather than reading, but it was one of the most delicious books, Anatomy of Anxiety. You wouldn't think that this would be, based on the title as you're laughing, as I was saying, that this would be such a pleasant listen or read, as the case may be. It was delightful. I am so glad to hear that. And the thought definitely crossed my mind. Anatomy of anxiety. Does this sound dry? Like this is going to be some kind of textbook. So yeah, I'm glad you made it past the title. Beyond one of my other markers is how often am I telling my wife, oh my God, you got to read this. Oh my God, you got to read this. This one made it to that a lot. My nickname in high school, which you didn't know, is, was Enthusiatum. And it <laughs> totally flew off the Enthusiatum scale. So you crushed it, Ellen. And what you're delivering right now is so timely because anxiety is omnipresent, whether it's political stuff, doom scrolling, which we'll talk about in a little bit, post-COVID, everything that's going on, anxiety is omnipresent. It's almost as if you aren't having some anxiety symptoms beyond what was previously there. Maybe you're in a coma. So let's talk a little bit about, first off, what compelled you to take this approach to this fire-breathing dragon known as anxiety? 
I like treating anxiety. There's a lot of mental health diagnoses that I'm like, oh, here we go. Roll up our sleeves, <laughs> take a deep breath. Let's get started. Anxiety is delightful because there are a lot of quick wins to be had. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. There are ways that we're living our lives in the modern world that are unnecessarily creating untold amounts of suffering and anxiety, and it doesn't have to be happening. So this approach, I mean, I take this approach to anxiety. I take this approach to everything. This is just how I think about the ways that we get out of balance as a human organism. And it works with anxiety really well without too much sacrifice. So that's what compelled me. Love that idea of low-hanging fruit when it comes to anxiety. What is some of the low-hanging fruit? So with anxiety, we're going to get right into it. Get (laughs) right into it. Maybe I do a little framing and make sense of why I would even approach it this way. So a little framing is that the central thesis of the book is to recognize that rather than the way we're trained, that the DSM, the so-called Bible of mental health that tells us anxiety is either generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder with or without agoraphobia or OCD, so on and so forth. That system of nomenclature was not meaningfully steering treatment in my practice. I think it's designed to standardize our diagnoses for clinical trials. It's designed to gatekeep certain invasive interventions. It wasn't useful for the way I approach anxiety, where I'm really thinking about it holistically and using interventions that are safe and non-invasive. So there's nothing really to gatekeep there. What I started to realize was a more useful classification system was to divide anxiety into two types. What I call false anxiety, most invalidating triggering term ever, but we'll circle back around why it's not intended to be invalidating. False anxiety is avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body. It's when some aspect of modern life tips our nervous system out of balance, creates a stress response, and we subjectively experience that as anxiety. Let's actually go deeper into that one. I mean, I've not actually heard anybody talking about that, and that's such an important thing. We feel something in our body. We misattribute it, perhaps, and we're having a a normal response to these impulses, these pings. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, this, I hope, is the most important takeaway people get from my book. And you can get it at like chapter two. So <laughs> I think that you know, if you have to put it down at that point, I'm cool. I think that- You're not going to um, put it down, folks. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to go through the end. I'm like, stay for the false anxiety or come for the false anxiety, stay for the <laughs> discussion around spirituality. We go into deep things. But I think that's really the idea here is that our brain, it's the consummate meaning maker- And it is constantly trying to tell us a story to make meaning of first and foremost, a physical sensation. If you give our brain a piece of paper with two dots and a line, our brain says, I know what that is. That's a face. And if you give our brain a hangover, sleep deprivation, some amount of inflammation and an extra cup of cold brew coffee, our body is in a stress response. And our brain says, I know what that is. That's that my boss's email seemed to suggest if you read between the lines that I'm underperforming at work and that interpersonal dynamic from the seventh grade still irks me. So it will tell us a story. It's saying, well, we're anxious because of these things going on in our lives. It's not to invalidate our very real problems, our very real stressors. They are happening. They are real. But the reason we're anxious in that moment is not actually our stressors. We are anxious in that moment because of something that is first and foremost a physical state of imbalance. And we can address it at that level 
and walk away from that unnecessary anxiety. And it doesn't have to be happening. It's avoidable anxiety. That's why I call it false. I really have been influenced by a woman named Julia Ross, who wrote a book called The Mood Cure. And she's the one who, for me, opened my eyes to the idea that we have our real moods. That's when something happened and we're in a mood as a result. And then we have our, what she calls emotional imposters, these times when something's out of balance in our body and it's creating a mood state and it's not our deep inner truth. And how many times have all of us gone through that monkey mind like state of like maybe we're on caffeine and our brain is beginning to trip and spin a little bit. And then we think about something that happened last night, an interaction that we had. And we suddenly create a story about it. It's like, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. And I must have looked like a complete moron. And then you call your friend and you say, how much of a moron did I look like? And your friend says, what are you talking about? I don't even remember that. And we have this story. It's almost like this Rorschach that's going on. We're projecting all over the place, creating all kinds of stories based on our body's impulses that you're deeming, and I agree with, are false anxiety. This is just a story we're creating based on the impulses. And I think that's so important. And just a note on those stories we tell ourselves. I always love Byron Katie's approach with the four Hmm. questions where she's like, is it true? And then the second question is, is it really true? Which I think is such an important sacred pause. Anytime Hmm. we're like, here's what's happening. Here's the story I'm telling myself. And we have to second guess, is it really true? But I also think sometimes not putting aside the fact that we're also self-absorbed, that people weren't actually focused on you. They were focused on themselves. But even sometimes we did gaff. We did say the wrong thing. We did come across as foolish. And even then we can work in a different way of talking to ourselves, which is okay. And so what? We're flawed humans out there trying to do our best. We're not bad. We're not supposed to be ashamed in that moment. We're supposed to shrug and learn from it and say, you know what? All I'm doing out here is my best and it's all I can do. It's enough. Love that take. And I love that you're bringing Byron Katie, someone who is often referred to as being spiritual. And if you think about, is it true? And then the second question being, is it really true? That is akin to what Adam Grant just wrote about in terms of thinking scientifically. So you see that there's like this non-mutually exclusive proposition between the science realm and kind of the spiritual realm. And a lot of that is addressed in your book as well, that it is a very holistic approach in every which way, whether it's kind of that non-dualistic thinking that you seem to espouse, or if it's looking at the body and the mind kind of as a non-duality. I love what you do with food and how important it is that we listen to our body when it comes to food and be more intuitive and be more actively attentive to our body system. Because when we feed it the wrong food, guess what? We may have an inflammation response and we may misattribute that inflammation response to anxiety itself. Once again, did I get that correctly when I... Absolutely. And I guess this ties in perfectly where I will now finally answer your first question. (laughs) All right. And we'll come back around later to true anxiety, which is the contrast to false anxiety. It's our purposeful anxiety, not something to pathologize, not something to suppress not something that relates to coffee or gluten. It is our true north. But within false anxiety, food is a really big factor. It's in a list of so many different things from sleep to movement to how we're feeding ourselves, whether we're inflamed, whether our blood sugar is all over the place. Are we deficient in micronutrients? Is our digestive tract healthy? All the way down to less physical, more psycho-spiritual needs that our bodies have, like our fundamental human need for community and connection to nature, 
a feeling of being of service and making a contribution, connection to meaning and purpose in our lives. So within food, I think that there's so much here and we do have to start from a place of, if this is news to you, we do need to get totally hip to the idea that just the fact that what we feed ourselves impacts our mental health. We have to accept that. We need to accept that baseline. The fact that I will go into conventional medical circles and that is still being debated or not even so much debated, but just outright poo-pooed is crazy bananas. Totally wackadoodle, crazy bananas agreed. We were like, yo, you have to give premium gasoline to that kind of car or else the engine won't function properly. It's like, "Uh uh-huh. And (laughs) (laughs) And what about your body? And what about your luxury SUV brain? (laughs) we, We need to give that engine the proper fuel as well. So we do need to accept first and foremost that what we eat impacts our mental health. Then within that, there's so much nuance. And sometimes I want to really simplify the story just to say, generally, whenever possible, err on the side of eating real food, err on the side of avoiding fake food, meaning processed food. And if we need a simple compass, there's your compass. And if you want to get really into the nitty gritty of it, I think we need to name the fact that there's a delicate balance here. We need to use our food to nourish our bodies, to recognize that there's a nutritional scavenger hunt. We have a lot of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, macronutrients that we need to check those boxes in any given day. And it's difficult to do. So rather than thinking, what's an empty calorie that I can mindlessly snack on? We need to be thinking, what's a nutrient dense food that's really going to give my body what it needs so that my brain can function optimally. And that shows up as good mental health. But we need to nourish ourselves without creating inflammation and blood sugar swings. And then we need to do this with an attitude of ease and pleasure and certainly convenience and affordability, but not from a place of fearing food or feeling like our bodies are fragile or becoming obsessed with meal prep, letting it become a part-time job. And I think that's actually a delicate balance in our modern food landscape. It's hard to strike that balance. And within that, we need to navigate all food choices from a place of radical self-love. That's our reason for doing anything around food, not self-punishment, not to make ourselves small, not to please the patriarchal gaze. It's none of those things. It's only ever, why am I eating this lentil soup? Why am I eating this gelato? If the answer is because I love myself, then green light, go forward. And if it's anything else, then you want to pause and reconsider. I love that so much. And I'm thinking about radical self-love or self-listening as it comes to food. And that's something that we're not really taught to do. Some people might even think that it's overly indulgent. And I would say it's the exact opposite because we will not be able to be available to other people if we're not listening to our bodies. And there's something fascinating about the idea that your winning formula when it comes to food might be vastly different to mine. And therefore, when your friend says you got to eat this and you try it and it doesn't do jack for you, it's important to listen. What are your thoughts with regard to individual differences and yeah, listening in that way? Absolutely. I mean, not just the fact that there's so much bioindividuality, which has to do with our ancestry all the way down to it has to do with what bugs are living in our gut in this moment. But even what's the winning formula for you might vary based on for a person in a menstruating body, what point in their cycle they're at or what season it is or where are you living and what's growing around you? So all of these considerations, but again, that can get overwhelming. So simplifying back to a useful compass, 
you do want to tune in. What is your body telling you it's craving? And within that question, there's a discernment. Is what it's craving a drug-like food or a real food? If it's saying like, I'm craving a juicy steak and a pile of mashed potatoes, I say that's real food. That's a reflection of a nutrient yearning that your body has. Go forth. And if your body's like, you know what my inner body wisdom is telling me I'm craving right now? It's pizza. That could be a drug-like craving because those foods can behave like drugs in our bodies. And so basically you want to ask yourself what you're yearning for. And then if it's a real food, go forward. And I think that once you've consumed it, you also want to check in and just notice how you feel and recognize that this will be a moment to moment changing process, but that doesn't have to be stressful or overwhelming. It's delightful to tune in and be like, what am I really in the mood for? And how do I meet that need? Now, meeting that need, I will be the first to admit is not always delightful. You're like, oh, now I have to start chopping an onion and get this done. But I think that there are ways to make that more realistic and doable in our daily lives. But I do think that the listening is paramount and our bodies actually communicate to us very well. We're just not in the practice of listening to it. And we have a lot of messaging that tells us outsource your body wisdom, choose what you're going to eat based on this scientific study, this media headline, this latest fad. There's some merit to all of this, but it can only ever be some inputs And then ultimately, you know it, but you're not exclusively relying on that for your choices. You're dropping in, tuning in and listening. One of the things I'm kind of getting also from your book is soothe your body, listen to your body, and you will soothe your anxiety. Does that feel overly simplistic or does that feel perhaps on brand? I think it's a piece of it. And I think our bodies, like there's a section of my book where I talk about the body whisperer. And I think for some of us, panic is the body shouting. And it's not fun. It's unpleasant. It's exquisitely uncomfortable to have a panic attack. But in some ways, it demonstrates a failure to listen to the body whispering at earlier phases. And our body could be telling us any number of different things, like that's enough coffee (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I need a snack or I needed to go to bed earlier. Or it's our body telling us this job is really out of alignment with my purpose or this relationship is really not safe for me. And so I think sometimes our body in trying to help makes it, it shuts down, it has us panic. It basically says, okay, if you're not going to listen to these more subtle signals, then I'm going to speak really loudly and it's going to get uncomfortable. And I'm kind of almost seeing my body as a baby. When a baby cries, it wants one of three things. It wants to be changed, it wants a nap, or it wants to be fed. And if we could just do that with our bodies, a couple weeks ago, I was on vacation and after a show, my wife and I were coming back and there was this gorgeous gelateria. And I knew it's right near bedtime. Probably not the best time for me to consume that gelato. I went for it anyway. I did not listen to my body's three messages. And I ended up amped and just not really sleeping all that well that night. So I think that just this idea of listening to our body is so important. One of the things you also mentioned, though, that I thought was so fascinating was the idea of anxiety showing up as a metaphor at times. And I was wondering if you could speak to the metaphorical components of the anxiety itself. Yes. And compulsively, I just also want to add something around the baby thing. Sure. 
I mean, that's really a big part of the inspiration for this book is when my daughter was a baby. For me, it was like, yeah, it was, does she need to be changed or fed or is she tired? And I would add to that, maybe sometimes she needed a burp or she was teething. And to start to realize like that was just enough, just one or two too many things to keep in mind in any given moment. So if she was fussy, I was like, ah, what is it this time? I've somehow forgotten all the possibilities. And to have a list on the fridge to just cue you and be like, could she be teething? Does she just need to be burped? Is she tired? <laughs> to remind you when you're a little bit in a stressful moment and you don't have the presence of mind to necessarily go through the whole inventory. And like, and what if we had a decision tree for ourselves like that? Exactly. Because we really, at the end of the day, are just oversized toddlers. We also have our list and it's less so about needing to be burped but more so about, are we sleep deprived? Do we need a snack? Are we dehydrated? Do we need to move our bodies? Are we inflamed? Do we eat something that our digestive tract doesn't agree with us and we're uncomfortable in that way? Are we over-caffeinated? Are we hungover? Are we due for a psychiatric medication, which is an interesting form of interdose withdrawal, which can be a false mood, all the way down to, are we not getting our fundamental human needs met? And so I want people to have a list that they can print out, put on their fridge, keep in their bag, so that when you're in that moment of peak anxiety and it just all feels so overwhelming and so doom and gloom and our story runs away on a magic carpet ride about how big our problems are and how insurmountable it all is, we can look at that list and we can be like, oh, I am hungry. I am hungover. I did have an extra coffee. And it's not to invalidate our very real stressors, but it's an and. It's basically saying our problems are real And it's feeling harder than it is because of this physiologic state. We are less resilient in the face of it. So anxiety is a metaphor. You are a physician. I believe you're also an acupuncturist. You really take a very multimodal, holistic approach to the human body. And in addition to nutrition, I'm wondering at what point do you consider medication to be a good idea for somebody who's suffering from anxiety? Yeah, at various points. For me, I'm not one of these holistic practitioners that's dogmatically opposed to medication. I am always just in the business of decreasing human suffering with the least possible harm in the process. And medication is rarely the most elegant solution. When I'm thinking about, okay, this person is presenting, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're constantly bloated, they have acne, they're getting headaches, they're not getting their period. I'm thinking, well, what's the root here? That's the functional medicine mentality. It's always root cause resolution rather than symptom suppression. My conventional training was about symptom suppression. It said, you have PCOS and you're not getting your period? Go on the pill. You'll have a period. We solved nothing. In fact, we made it worse, but we suppressed the symptoms. You have heartburn, take an antacid. We did not solve the underlying issue. In fact, we exacerbated it, but we've ended the heartburn for as long as you're taking that pill. And so that's symptom suppression. And I just cannot help, but it's in my fabric. That bothers me. I want to resolve something at the root. So when someone's depressed or anxious, I'm thinking, why? This is not a broken body. This is a body behaving properly and communicating to us. It has a broken set of inputs. Somehow it's not thriving. It's not in balance. So what's out of balance? And I want to roll up my sleeves and do that detective work to identify the underlying causes of imbalance. So usually we can get someone there and then medication, we've obviated the need for it. It's no longer relevant once we've solved the underlying imbalance. But there are times 
when like someone is just too deep in a hole and usually there's some kind of mentality of this warrants, this requires medication. And then I'll use medication not only as a pharmacologic tool, but even as a letting someone feel heard that this is their inclination Mm. tool and sort of empowering them that they really are, if they have an instinct that this is what they need, I want to help them practice trusting their instincts, listening to that. I want to enable that. So I think that I use it as a tool in so many ways, but not always because I think it's the most elegant solution for the ways they're out of balance. And part of my hesitation around meds is not just that it's not always the most elegant solution, but I do find that I don't know how often, because I see the people that wash up to shore who are having struggles with getting off of meds. I'm sure some people out there don't have difficulty getting off of psych meds, but enough people do have difficulty with that process that to me, that's fairly damning. And I am always first thinking, do no harm. At the very least, we need informed consent up front about here's the range of possibilities. Here's the real efficacy of this medication. Here's what might happen if and when you might decide to go off of the medication. We're not having that conversation. We're just saying, oh, you're depressed. Oh, you're going through perimenopause. Here's Zoloft. And we put somebody on it and then no follow-up. And then should they miss a pill or decide to go off of it at some point, they might have very harrowing withdrawal. And they don't even know to attribute that to withdrawal because we're not having a public conversation about psychiatric medication withdrawal. So we call it relapse and we think, okay, that medication was actually really helping me. I really needed it. And we go right back on. And I think we just need to know what's really happening there. Someone's in withdrawal from a psychoactive substance. So I don't necessarily want to send somebody down that path if it's avoidable, but sometimes it's the right path to send them down and I prescribe medications and I have patients who've been really helped by them. So the nice thing about mental health is there's never a dull moment and no two people are alike. And anytime I dogmatically think I've got this figured out, it tends to kick me in the teeth. So I do it all from completely holistic to completely pharmacologic. And you know, what's interesting is having a multimodal approach I've found has been very useful. I had a uh, cat who had both a hyper and a hypoimmune disorder. And it was very difficult to balance these two things. And with a cat, we can rule out the placebo because the cat (laughs) does not see what's happening. But what I found was that using an integrative approach between allopathic medication, using nutraceuticals, using Chinese medication, and even using other supplemental, more fringe materials, I was able to keep that cat alive and healthy, according to every veterinarian's perspective and blew their minds for five years beyond expectation. So when I meet you who comes in and says, there's not just one path and that all of these deserve consideration, but particularly what I hear you saying is let's see if we can actually get to the root of the problem first, obviate other perhaps damning interventions that could actually cause as many problems as they are helping. So I think that's really great. And I love the word obviate. So it's a really cool (laughs) vocab word you don't hear every day. Let's just go back though. You talk a bit about moving the body. And I love that. 
I actually did decide to listen to Alma Extended Mix by James Asher, yes. as you suggested, and move my body around. Why don't we talk a little bit about body moving and its role in helping anxiety? Yeah. So, I mean, movement itself, just exercise. When we put that up against our medications, in certain ways, it outclasses conventional medication. It's effective. It doesn't have side effects. It has side benefits. It helps with everything, helps us sleep better, helps us live longer, helps us feel strong. And that has its own ramifications in terms of our feeling of self-efficacy and even core strength, I think is really critical to feeling like, okay, I can, op- I can navigate this world mm. from a place of strength and from my center. And I think that has its own implications for our mental health. That said, exercise is hard. If it were easy, like taking <laughs> a pill, we'd all be doing it. I do think we're missing the messaging around exercise, which is just to lower our standards. Like we don't all need to be striving for perfection with exercise. And I think those lofty standards just make it unrealistic. So rather than being so all or nothing, we can just say, well, what's free and convenient and pleasurable? And can I do that sustainably? And that might be a couple minutes of calisthenics. That might be dancing in your living room to one Whitney Houston song. Could be a walk around the block. It's something small. The movement that I bring up in the book, shaking, I really love that in a way that relates to what's called completing the stress cycle. And this was brought forth by writers like Peter Levine, but the Nagoski sisters, Emily and Amelia Nagoski, Mm -hmm. they really popularized it in their book, Burnout, which is a great read. And they talk about how stress is a cycle, like other familiar cycles, like the arousal cycle. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. But in our modern lives, we don't bring our stress to a place of resolution. We're stuck in that middle of stress. And when you look at, say, an animal of prey Mm. having a life or death, acutely stressful encounter with a predator, if it has a freeze response, a drop response, what it will do afterward is it will shake. And that seems to be how the animal discharges excess adrenaline, seems to be how it communicates to its nervous system. The threat has passed. And now it's safe to be in my body. And I think just like we are oversized toddlers, we are also just very heavy headed leopards in a lot of ways or rabbits really. And I think that what we can do is we can shake and it doesn't have to be how you complete your stress cycle. Like you can dance, you can chant, you can make art, you can cry, you can cuddle. All of these are great ways to complete the stress cycle. I personally like shaking because I put on this music, James Asher's Ama Extended Mix, the one I was taught this practice with, and it syncs up your brain with theta waves. So that is itself inherently relaxing. But then you close your eyes, you let your body be kind of floppy, and you move however your body feels like moving, which I think not only helps, like when you look at a woman in childbirth, her body can take over. It knows how it needs to move. Your body knows how it needs to move if you give it permission. But I think even just letting your body call the shots and do what it feels it needs, not what we think looks cool or normal or Mm. socially appropriate, but what it wants to do, that is inherently therapeutic because when does our body get to call the shots? So it helps strengthen that hotline to here's what my body is saying it needs. So that's why I shake. I do it for like 90 seconds at the end of a day with patients and it presses control, alt, delete on the nervous system. I feel very reset afterward. Such a sister from another mister. I also use that expression of the control alt delete, just that system override and how crucial that is. And anybody who has seen that Peter Levine video with the polar bear, you can look it up on YouTube, but 
you can see how the stress cycle is finished by animals who seem to naturally know how to do that. And we humans really don't, unless we're actually explicitly taught or given permission. And you're the first person I've ever heard describe the idea of core strength being kind of a measure of feeling agency in your body. Perhaps that in and of itself could be anxiety reducing, just knowing that I've got core strength and feeling a sense of agency, preparedness, empowerment in the world through that core strength. I think that's brilliant. And that the mom's body knows what to do when giving birth. All these things that you're dropping, these are really huge nuggets. And my listeners are certain to be the beneficiaries of this hard-earned wisdom from you. There's so many of these two-way streets of communication with the body between the body and the mind. And if you can picture someone with a really hunched forward posture, this might be a posture we would assume if we are depressed. But and by the way, also- this posture that you're doing, the listeners kind of a slumped over look, like this is not good posture. This is that kind of uh, disempowered, bad for your back posture that my wife tells me not to do when I'm sitting <laughs> in the chair. I mean, picture Charlie Brown really, right? That oh, down totally. past. And, good and grief. It's a good grief. It's a two-way street. So when we're down, we assume this posture. When we assume this posture, it makes us feel down. If we are arms akimbo, chest open, like this is actually somewhat of an even going too far egoic. You know, we feel powerful, we feel strong, we feel confident, but it can even venture into like too proud. <laughs> so I think that there's always a center point of alignment. And I think that take jaw, jaw like so many of my patients with anxiety have mm. TMJ or sure. bruxism, teeth grinding, all of this. And I think this is its own deep conversation. We could go into a lot of nuance with this, but a lot of us have underdeveloped jaws, poor tongue posture. We sort of veer into sleep apnea territory. And something that the body can sometimes do in those cases is jaw tension to reorganize the musculature in an attempt to open up the airway so we can breathe more effectively when we sleep. But a result of it is jaw tension. And the jaw is very keenly wired with our sympathetic or fight or flight nervous system. It relates to the fact, picture a dog ready to fight. They're going to growl. They're going to move their jaws in a particular way. I'm ready to fight. And it's how stress presents in the jaw. But when the jaw is in that position, it feeds right back up to the brain and says, we're stressed, whether or not we have something to be stressed about in that moment. So it's just very important to be aware of how we're holding ourselves, how we're holding our jaw, our core strength, our posture, our neck, all of that is going to be in a two-way communication with the brain about how we feel. And it will be a result, but also it can contribute to how we're feeling. What's bonkers as I hear you say this is I actually broke my jaw in three places when I was 10 years old. And I trended toward anxious as a child. And I got into this profession quite Honestly, as I told you offline, I call myself the hair club for men guy. I don't just treat anxiety. I suffer from it badly. But I can only imagine that had to have exacerbated my pre-existing condition. But boy, TMJ, I have been hearing a lot about that lately. And what an interesting insight you've shared. And even in its role with regard to sleep and sleep apnea, to that end, I actually do want to speak a little bit about sleep itself, since sleep is both... Oftentimes a symptom or the cure, or I should say not necessarily the cure, but at least can certainly reduce the inflammation of anxiety itself, if you'll allow for the term inflammation of anxiety. What are some of your favorite sleep tips? 
Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that it can be the symptom and the cure. And like every mental health issue, we say, well, I'm not sleeping because of my anxiety or it's the depression causing that. And that's all valid. But also we know that sleep deprivation exacerbates every single mental health diagnosis that exists. So I think it's the easier entry point to solve rather than seven years of psychotherapy to fix the anxiety or the depression. Can we do a few minutes of strategic understanding what contributes to bad sleep, fix that, sleep better, less depression, less anxiety. So the way I like to support sleep, I find that the most important thing to get strategic about, it's our light cues. It has to do with the fact that our circadian rhythm or our sleep-wake cycle is cued by light. And this was a foolproof system on the proverbial savanna of evolution, where if it was daytime, we were outside, light meant daytime, and that suppresses our melatonin, we release cortisol, we feel awake and alert, ready to engage with the challenges of our day. But then after sunset, it was by definition dark at night. And save for the fire or the moonlight, we had darkness and that allowed our brain to release melatonin, which helped us feel sleepy. And I don't blame evolution for not anticipating the plot twist, which was that we were going to harness electricity and invent the light bulb and eventually the phone and eventually the TikTok. And now nobody sleeps anymore. But Mm -hmm. it has to do with the fact that we're not getting outside, getting a strong signal of sunlight first thing in the morning. And then after sunset, all hell breaks loose and we're surrounded by a psychedelic light show of overhead lighting and laptop screens. And we bring the phone into the bedroom with us. And all of this is going into our eyes impacting the part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it's telling the brain, good morning, the sun is rising and it could be midnight. And our brain is thinking, well, I thought I was tired, but I can't argue with sunshine. So it must be morning. We suppress our melatonin and then we can't sleep. So getting strategic about light, which we can take a couple different approaches. You can defenestrate your phone into the ocean and move off the grid and homestead (laughs) chickens. That's a great option. But short of that, you can just get a pair of blue blocking glasses. I have them here to demonstrate. You can put these on at sunset, wear them until <laughs> and this will block blue spectrum light from getting into your eyes. These are some orange plastic lensed glasses that look like you're going to go shoot a firearm. That's exactly right. Or do <laughs> metallurgy or something like that. And they're goofy looking, but this is a great kind of health intervention. Sure. Something non-invasive, inexpensive, has biologic plausibility for why it works. This is the way to go. This and the squatty potty. That's the whole. So yeah, let's go. Let's get you. You also talk about squatty potties. So let's go there. Let's talk about that. Well, same idea as before. Two-way street. We know that our mind affects our gut. We know if we're chronically stressed, that's going to contribute to our IBS. We do need to appreciate that the health of our gut is also being reported back up to our brain all the time by way of the vagus nerve. And in modern life, which makes a broad assault against the health of our digestive tract, we don't have gut health. And that's constantly sending a memo to our brain, feel uneasy, feel anxious. It's designed to motivate us to rest so that we can heal, to make different choices. But we just go through our lives endlessly feeling uneasy and unwell because our guts are unhealthy. So we want to take steps to support our gut health. It starts with eliminating what irritates the gut. That's nobody's favorite part of the conversation because it's all that is good and amazing in the culinary world. But basically for some people, it's things like conventional American wheat. For some people, dairy. For most of us, the seed oils like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sugar plays a role in this. Alcohol plays a role. Various medications are destructive to our gut health. And then adding in what soothes the gut. 
which can be things like ghee and bone broth and collagen and glutamine, and then creating the conditions for the gut to heal, which rest is the most important one there. But I think the squatty potty is a close second and that approximates our anatomical. Are you saying the squatty potty is a close number two? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for catching that. Sure. Um, So for those of who do not know what the squatty potty is, what is it and how can it benefit them? Basically, it's a little stool you put at the base of your toilet and you can rest your feet on that during a bowel movement. And what that means is that without having our native bodies that are still able to squat without it being very effortful, we are approximating the squatting position, but with our weight resting on the toilet seat. So it's not so effortful. And this changes the alignment of our sigmoid colon, of our rectum and opens an otherwise partially closed sphincter that we'd be pushing against when we're just in the sitting position on the throne. So the fact that we sit on toilets is creating and contributing to IBS and chronic constipation and even... It's like putting a pinch in the piping. Exactly. And so when you squat, it opens the piping right up and that makes for more complete evacuation. And then we don't have hemorrhoids and IBS and constipation alternating with diarrhea and so on and so forth. So it really solves a lot of problems of modern life all in one $24 piece of plastic. It's so funny because I'm thinking about the graduate and I guess the future is in plastics between the, uh, the glasses and the spotty potty, which I just could not resist. Please note, I have no financial ties to squatty potty, but you can just check out their ads on YouTube. They're hilarious, but they're also accurate and informative. On that note, is there anything I should have asked, but haven't yet asked? Well, we didn't come back around to true anxiety. Aha. Uh-huh. Let's, Let's go back to true anxiety. And this is the other side of it, where the whole first half of the book is saying, well, our anxiety is unnecessary. It's avoidable. It's related to these aspects of modern life that get our body out of balance. And so we can play Mr. Fix-It and do all these actionable strategies, keep our blood sugar stable, decrease our caffeine consumption, make conscious choices around alcohol, be less inflamed, get a squatty body, sleep better. All of that decreases our anxiety dramatically, makes all the difference. And it's beautiful, but I also think it's important to point out, not all anxiety is pathologic. And sometimes it's not what's wrong with us. It's what's right with us when we are viscerally connected to what is wrong in the world around us. And so we don't want to just think, let's decaf coffee our way out of all anxiety. There's some amount of anxiety where when we've cleared the air and addressed all of those false anxieties, it remains. And it's our inner compass. It's there nudging us, asking us to slow down and pay attention to something that's out of alignment. And that can be on a very large scale. It can be very personal, but we have to listen for its message and honor it. And I think once we've translated that true anxiety into purposeful action, we don't feel so mired in the suffering of the anxiety anymore. We feel imbued with purpose. And so I think that this is where I really do think it's important to recognize that some amount of our anxiety is a superpower. That's not just a pander to anxious people. I think it's a message we have to get really clear on, which is that we're all on a spectrum. Some people are less sensitive. We need those people. We need them as our pilots and our surgeons. Mm-hmm. Some people can't make it through the news without crying. And we need those people too. And we need to stop saying what we do typically is we say, why are you so sensitive? Stop being so sensitive. 
what we need to do instead is say, tell me what you know. Because I think that the very sensitive folks among us, they're really our intuitives and our artists, and they're here in a prophetic capacity. They are dialed in. They know what is out of alignment. They know where we're headed toward destruction. And I think that they have some really important message that we all need to wake up and listen to. Yeah. And you even spoke about the chimps that were the ones who had difficulty sleeping and who could warn the tribe of chimps. They were the anxious ones and listening to these anxiety message and asking yourself, what does this mean? Because sometimes it is coffee and sometimes it is just the brain tripping on nothing. But sometimes it's very relevant. I think about my own. I had a panic attack when I was in my late 30s. And what it was all about was I needed to change my career and I needed to listen. And no amount of benzos or psychoactive medication was going to change that. It was actually listening to the inconvenient truth of my anxiety and saying, holy crap, I guess I need to do something that's going to suck for a little while, which is get licensed at a very inconvenient time for me and my family. But as soon as I did that, that stuff went away. So to your point, oftentimes it's looking at anxiety and sifting it through the colander and seeing what goes through and what is nothing. And on the other side, what is something? That's exactly right. I love that you use the term inconvenient truth. Often our true anxieties have a little bit of a call to action baked into them. And Mm. sometimes it blows up our life. And I think to use the words of our mutual friend and colleague, Britt Frank, the author of the science. (laughs) I love her. She said, choose your heart. And it's hard to listen to our true anxiety. It's hard to put those changes into action. It is arguably harder to stay stuck in living out of alignment with our truth. So true. Well, my final miracle question for you. If you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity one skill or insight, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine the individual as well as perhaps society at large might benefit from that skill or insight? I sometimes think that the assignment of being here in human form is it's to know love, it's to be love, it's to learn all of the lessons of love. I currently am batting like a B minus on that, but we all have work to do around (laughs) this. And I think the take-home test of life, like you can look up the answer to life, right? It's like, you can Google it. It's love. It's in every sophomore poem. It's in every mushroom trip. That's the answer. But the take-home test, writing the essay, demonstrating our understanding is how we go through our lives. So I think if we could magically all get there and not only know how to love each other, but I think also very importantly, know self-love and self-compassion. I think that we would all be a lot kinder. I think that we would access transcendence and that would be a beautiful world. And I think we have a ways to go, but all we can do is be out here doing our best, just trying to learn love. Love that. And just to echo something you just said, doing our best, that's one of the messages that you kind of repeat through the book is we're not looking about a thousand but we are looking to do just maybe a little better and to do our best. And Ellen, I just can't thank you enough for you so generously sharing your wisdom between the covers of your beautiful book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, and 
for sharing your time and your expertise with my listeners. This has been phenomenal. Adam, thank you so much for having me on and thank you for the important work that you do. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.